Uh, welcome to Yale's podcast. Uh, we have with us Michael Knights, the Bernstein Fellow for the Washington Institute for Area Policy, who focuses on Yemen. Um, we're going to talk to him about the Houthis, or Ansar Allah, as their formal name is. Um, so I guess we will begin at the beginning as a novel strategy. Um, the origins of the Houthis are somewhat contested or controversial, at least they were. Uh, a lot of analysts kind of regarded them as their relationship with Iran as contingent, as beginning after the, the Arab coalition intervened in 2015. Um, he did a report about two years ago, Barrett Lavelle, saying, um, I mean, this wasn't so, they, they begin as an outgrowth of the 1979 Islamic revolution in Iran. Uh, others have taken this up since. I think uh, you did a report for CPC Sentinel at the end of last year that had, uh, the, I think, broadly agreed with those conclusions. Uh, can you just speak about that? Absolutely. Uh, thanks very much for having me on today. Um, EER was very ahead of the curve when it came to documenting the long-running Iranian and Lebanese Hezbollah role uh, in shaping the Houthi movement, Ansar Allah, as it later became. And what I did in the West Point Combat and Terrorism Center article was to take that research, you know, a level deeper and update it and look at how that affected um, the key individuals who came to the top of the Houthi movement and how many of those individuals were selected because they were willing to travel to Iran and Lebanon because they were being groomed uh, by Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, or Lebanese Hezbollah, or both, and uh, because they ultimately had the same objectives uh, as uh, the rest of uh, the axis of resistance. Uh, you know, they wanted to expand the Islamic Revolution, and they wanted to use Iran as a model uh, for how Yemen could be uh, developed under a Houthi theocracy. And this is actually very easy to prove once you start simply looking in detail at the history of the Houthi movement. It almost takes an act of will to not see it. And, you know, what we saw in the early days of the Houthi movement um, was tremendous sympathy uh, for the movement by um, outsiders, think tankers. And to some extent, I understand that. In the six wars, and I was in Yemen during the six wars between Houthis and the Yemeni government, uh, the Houthis were, to some extent, uh, victimized. They were hit with very hard and indiscriminate tactics. Um, on the other hand, uh, the Houthis themselves are pretty indiscriminate and brutal, too, as a military force. And, you know, from my perspective, it's very important to get it accurately recorded that the key Houthi leaders seem to have a very intentional relationship with the Islamic Revolution, and they modeled their takeover of Yemen on the Islamic Revolution in Iran and in Lebanon. And this was not a transactional relationship that began when um, the Saudis uh, did Operation Decisive Storm. In fact, the reason why Operation Decisive Storm occurs is because there is a intensifying 
relationship, military relationship between the Houthis and Iran after the Arab Spring, once the Yemeni government becomes very, very weak. So when people say that the Houthis are only with Iran because of the conflict in Yemen, they're very much putting the cart before the horse. In fact, there's a lot of evidence that it's the other way around. The war begins because the Houthis uh, have become so close to the Iranians and they intend to become closer. Do um, where would you say that this fit in the kind of uh, the threat vector from the Iranians? In other words, what was the the purpose of establishing this outburst of the revolution? Well, first of all, I think it's it's simply their nature. Uh, it, it's it's hardwired into the axis of resistance leadership that if they can, they will both assist and uh, prompt other militant forces across the region to do the work of expanding the Islamic revolution. And so, you know, the Revolutionary Guard Quds Force and Lebanese Hezbollah is hardwired to not just say yes to any guerrilla fighters who want to um, move in their direction, but to also actively groom and look for leadership cadre and then develop that leadership cadre in different countries. So, you know, in Yemen, the Iranian involvement there is quite subtle and it's it's spread across family and business networks and religious um, you know, leadership. It's about organizing numerous trips uh, over the, um, the 80s and the 90s. Uh, between Yemen and Beirut and Qum. And once you start to track these interactions, these movements, as EER did, and then as we did in CTC Sentinel, um, it forms a very demonstrable pattern of grooming, development, talent spotting, and moving people back and forth to at first be assessed and then to begin to receive training and mentoring. Uh, and then, in, you know, from about from the Arab Spring onwards, we start to see uh, the Iranians actually and Lebanese Hezbollah begin to deploy people into Yemen to kind of bring that training, equipping and mentoring effort um, right to the Houthis doorstep to help them to operationalize that in a takeover of the country. Uh, it- it, it is always difficult to talk about this because um, the categories we use just don't tend to work. So it, they'll reflect like Iran-backed Houthis, and it's it's a mistake because they're they're an integral component of the, the revolution. Um, so it's a slightly technical question, but um, have the Iranians started kind of moving other spheres of the the network into Yemen? In other words, say Iraqi militias, have they started coming into Yemen either? to buttress the Houthis or for training? And have the Houthis ever been deployed outside of Yemen? So the Houthis, like all Iran-backed militias, uh, are unique, have a unique relationship with the Iranians and with uh, Lebanese Hezbollah uh, to some extent. 
by that I mean everywhere that the Revolutionary Guard Quds Force operates, whether they are working with people that you would not hesitate to call proxies or that you would say are simply fellow travellers or think they're fellow travellers but don't realise they're proxies yet. Um, you know, whatever blend it is um, that you're looking at, the Iranians employ a differentiated model everywhere. There's no one-size-fits-all uh, cookie-cutter model for how they do sort of buy with and through uh, with uh, with partner forces. So, you know, if it's in Bahrain, it's going to be a very covert presence. It's going to be highly operationally secure. It's going to be patient and it has to be able to survive scrutiny from one of the world's uh, best um, uh, internal security services. If you're in Yemen, you know, in a wartime environment, uh, it's completely with, with people who run the capital and significant portions of the country and the coastline, uh, you know, you, you have a completely different model. And again, you have a different model in Iraq, in Lebanon, in Syria, in Gaza, uh, and elsewhere, Afghanistan, I'm sure. So, you know, with the um, with the Houthis in these areas, uh, they are they are trying to turn the Houthis. Start again. The Iranians are trying to turn the Houthis into not just the southern Hezbollah to mirror the northern Hezbollah uh, in Lebanon, but probably something better than the northern Hezbollah. You know, the, the Lebanese Hezbollah have, have become a, a powerful machine uh, in Iran's hands, and one that, you know, with some difficulties could be played into, uh, into Syria, uh, even though they did stress the overall system. And, you know, Lebanese Hezbollah, you know, has its own equivalent of Quds Force that, that can operate in Iraq and other places. Even though, honestly, um, you know, they may speak Arabic, but you tend to find the Lebanese Hezbollah trainers can be resented by strong local um, pro-Iranian militias. For instance, Qatar Hezbollah in Iraq is, is not really that receptive to Lebanese Hezbollah. It considers itself on par to them, not under them. Whereas, you know, in, in Yemen, uh, the Houthis seem to have a very good relationship with Lebanese Hezbollah, and they seem to accept that these people are more experienced peers who have a lot to to give and for some reason you know even though we always hear about how independent the houthis are they wrap their head around having lebanese hezbollah advisors there and it doesn't seem to be too much of a problem we don't see the houthis typically deployed outside yemen uh, yet they're they're quite insular um but you know they will develop a cadre that's willing to be transnational that's always the case with these iran-backed um networks you know there are individuals who say my interest is in the national struggle a national liberation struggle or national takeover or whatever defending my sect um and then there's always the individuals and we see this in the iraqi networks um you know who say actually i'm interested i i'm with the entire pan-national effort and this national iraq struggle uh, is a bit parochial for me. You know, I'm looking broader. Now, with the Houthis, we don't detect a lot of individuals who have gone kind of transnational. They still have a very Yemeni focus, and that's a very Yemeni kind of um, hyper-local characteristic, um, I think, of the entire war and the, and the various forces 
uh, fighting in it. We do see some foreign trainers other than Lebanese Hezbollah coming to Yemen, um, very small numbers. And honestly, to me, it looks more like people who are coming on exchange visits to basically look at the war and to say they've been there and to size up these Houthis. Um, you know, there's there's probably some Houthis in Iraqi training camps for, uh, you know, the, the out-and-out terrorist groups and, and for the popular mobilization forces. You know, there's, there's quite a strong sympathy within Iraqi militia groups for the Houthis in Yemen, and there is a tendency to want some exchange with them. And there are Gulf um, terrorist recruits, you know, from Kuwait and Saudi and Bahrain in Iraqi training camps. We know that for sure. So, you know, the, it's a basically a good question is, is to what extent has a has a, a sliver of the Houthi movement been talent spotted away by Revolutionary Guard Quds Force and the Lebanese Hezbollah, maybe used in an, an Arab-speaking environment like um, Lebanon or Iraq to do uh, training and development? And where might they be played back into in the region? Uh, Matt Levitt, my colleague at the Washington Institute, wrote another interesting piece in CTC Sentinel where he basically looked at how the Iranian intelligence services and Revolutionary Guard will begin to use their um, terrorist contacts within Arab countries to kind of crisscross, uh, as uh, I think it was uh, Alfred Hitchcock uh, put it, you know, you, you basically kill, you know, your friend's enemy in that country because they're not seeing you coming and they kill your enemy in, you know, in, in another country. Um, we do see a bit of that already. And I suspect there'll be more of that. And, you know, Yemenis would be uh, one group that you could use for that, although, you know, they do have a particularly marked and difficult passport. Um, what would you say is the main thing that, or the main things that the, the Arab coalition did wrong? I mean, on paper, the, the disparity in firepower, they should have been fine, but it clearly has not gone well. Uh, kind of where did it go wrong? I'll take a bit of a different view of it, honestly. Um, from a strategic communications perspective, yes, there's no doubt the Yemen war has been in many ways a disaster for certainly Saudi Arabia and to some extent all the other Arab coalition members. Um, how the war has been perceived, how the information war has been fought and lost, there's, I'm sure, many lessons to learn from. And it can't be separated from broader things happening in the background like Khashoggi, you know. So, you know, you, you had a sort of strategic environment here where you're not going to win. Um, in terms of the actual operational environment and some of the basic war aims, you know, if you were to, if there were to be no, no rest of the world and it was only the Arab world uh, watching this thing, then the Saudis... Would probably not think that this has been such a disaster just that it was costly and a necessary investment that could not be avoided and could have been done more efficiently but actually uh you know did not turn out as badly as let's say the egyptian intervention in yemen in the sure, right. um you know they would say we pulled together basically you know the korean war is the 
is the model in some ways, which is that, you know, the, the North wants to overrun the South and wipe it out as of existence as a country. And you cannot accept that. Um, and as a result, you help the South to essentially the South to hold the line and it remains a divided country, uh, you know, to this day. Now, you know, would you say NATO and, you know, in the West lost the Korean War? No. You know, you would say that they held the line. They didn't manage to wipe out you know, North Korea or, or conquer that. But, um, you know, they allowed South Korea to become a viable state, not under the control of the North Koreans uh, and, and the, you know, the Chinese you know, at the time. So, so to them, you know, being that to Saudi Arabia, Yemen is, is their Mexico to the United States, you know, or, or their Cuba, you know, they, they can't, they couldn't do nothing. Uh, at the time, and they think that you know they they now have an ability to constrict Houthi aerial and naval flows, and they have created a territorial enclave of you know a very significant size directly adjacent to the um, to Saudi and the GCC, you know that can survive uh, from this point onwards. Um, and yeah, they all, they just think of Yemen as a place that constantly generates trouble. So this is not entirely new for them. The scale of it's new for them. The fact that the Americans, you know, you know, were no part of this in a way uh, is new for them. The amount of backlash they got is new for them. But, you know, in some ways, if you look at how the Houthis have struck Saudi Arabia with drones and rockets and missiles, it's actually toughened the Saudis up a great deal, uh, not just mentally, uh, but also in terms of their ability to do counter-missile, counter-drone. Um, yes, they're stretched uh, with a multi-directional threat now that comes from Iran, from Iraq, and from Yemen. Uh, but on the other hand, they've also learned a lot about how to do this defensive work, and they've received a lot of support from the international community. They're basically, until the Ukraine war, they were really in the most experienced air defense operators in the world against the modern uh, drone threat. I, there's so much I want to come back to there, so I'm just going to try and take it in order. Uh, the first one is the, the information war. So as you say, I don't, I never really understood the argument that the Saudis should have stood aside to allow the Iranians and the Houthis to overrun the whole country. It just, it didn't seem very plausible. Um, so a lot of Yemeni friends that are on the information war side of things will ask questions often, just kind of say, why are you like this? <laughs> because the, the press is just so hostile, so constantly, and so soft on the Houthis, which I, I don't think we'll get into too much here, but the, as you were mentioning earlier, the, the actual model that the Houthis have in mind and the, thing, the system that they run in Yemen is incredibly brutal and would, I mean, it would put the Taliban to shame um, for, for the way they behave. Um, so do you have a view on why the, this, the information space is just so distorted in this way? In the West, I mean, specifically, I think it's better in the region. Yeah, I, I think um, I think it, it very simply comes down mainly to Saudi and it comes down to Western views of Saudi Arabia. And, you know, that that's become more pointed since the Shoggy, since uh, MBS took over. Um, you know, the the Western media do not accept they're not honest about the fact that they have an intrinsic anti-saudi bias and it's it's up to them what how they feel about things 
but you know if one saudi i mean i know this is you know this is an action that's uh, potentially undertaken by with the support of key leadership in the Khashoggi case but uh, you know egypt will do that 20 30 times a year and the us will not sell them weapons but give them you know well over a billion dollars of uh, of weapons so you know there, there's a lot of whataboutism and the the saudis you know don't understand why they're considered to be so much worse when so many other US partners, you know, do many of the same types of activities. Now, you know, the, the fact is, you know, it's 9-11. It, it still has a very heavy overhang in, in how the Saudis are treated. And, you know, generally speaking, there's just, as a country, they have a PR problem with the West, but, you know, they're more focusing on rebranding themselves, I think, within the region and indeed within their own country. And then at some point, Western views will probably just take a new reference point. But for now, you know, with regard to Yemen war, you know, it has a David and Goliath look to it. And, you know, you don't realize that, that David, you know, attacked Goliath and nearly killed him while he was asleep. <laughs> you know, so, so it's, you know, it's... <laughs> It's very hard for Western audiences who are pretty busy and the editors dumb it down for them and they, they want to, they continually underestimate the ability of Western audiences to, to, to understand a case like Yemen. Um, you know, it's easy to dumb it down and it fits a very neat set of train tracks in terms of narrative about Saudis, about rich Gulf Arabs, about the US and the UK and how they arm you know, certain governments in the Middle East. It reminds me a lot in terms of the, uh, the Soviet so-called National Liberation Movement during the, the Cold War, but I think we should kind of avoid that sidetrack. Um, on the drones question, um, how, I didn't know how to put this properly, but kind of where are we with that at this stage in the sense that are the Houthis able to threaten beyond Saudi Arabia? Do they intend to threaten beyond Saudi Arabia? Um, or are the Saudis kind of Locked that down. So, in across the entire Iranian threat network, we are constantly watching the drone activity and spending a lot of time uh, looking through the little pieces of trash left over after the drone attacks and the insides of drones and the wings. All the same stuff that people are doing in Ukraine right now. You know, we we've been doing that. You know yourself, uh, you know, ER, others, ourselves at Washington Institute, PTC Sentinel, for many years now from Iran, uh, you know, whether it's in Iraq, Yemen, Syria, Lebanon, Israel, Gaza, you know, wherever it is, the maritime areas, you know, we've been we've been looking at these Iranian drones. The key drone, the key trend for me at the moment is that you know, aside from them providing drones to Russia and, and, and that line of development that's going on, the kind of industrialization of the drone project, and, and it's, it's testing in a high-intensity warfare environment, which was much needed for the Iranians, and we have taught them a lot, and, and built up their manufacturing and design capabilities. Um, separate from that, the low-intensity use of drones across the Middle East as a, an accurate long-range but symbolic um, attack system for Iran-backed Iran militias uh, is, is entering a really 
fertile experimentation stage. Um, you know, in the same way that the Iranians might uh, give a model weapon to Iraqi militias, like the explosive form penetrator roadside bomb, um, you know, over time, we saw those militias begin to subtly change the designs, in some way, often to use inferior materials uh, in them, how to, how to do the thing with less good materials than the Iranians were providing initially, and then how to perhaps scale up that process uh, locally and not have a, an import chain, you know, kind of an import, do import substitution essentially and not have a supply chain. And the Iranians have been quite willing to do that. Um, it's quite interesting. They teach their proxies to be not self-reliant, but, you know, to certainly not be reliant for every little thing on them. If a system can be built locally, it is built locally. And so we're starting to see the kind of, the deprofessionalization of a lot of the drone systems. Uh, one just was used in Kurdistan region of Iraq um, last week against the gas facility. You know, and that was uh, a scaled down Iranian drone system. In other words, somebody had taken the way it was meant to be designed, and then they had used kind of inferior materials in a number of cases, and they made it smaller. And, you know, this is typical playing around with design that we see from the militias. So each of these militias in Yemen, particularly started with the Houthis in Iraq to some extent now, in Syria, they're, they're starting to perhaps receive less drone supplies from the Iranians. But the Iranians have done the forward investment to give them a rudimentary drone industry of their own and the ability to operate things like large 3D printers or, uh, you know, to, to take rolls of uh, fiber op, uh, fiberglass and, and turn it into hulls for wings, you know, other components. Um, so that's what we're seeing at the moment uh, around the region. Thanks. Um, a question basically about the I guess returning to kind of how the war's gone uh, for the Arab coalition, the probably the main fissure has been between the Saudis and the UAE, um, particularly the UAE's relationship with the, um, I don't want to say separatists, but the, the southern part of the country that has a, a distinct identity, and that some of them I think are separatists, but not, not all of them. Um, and that kind of erupted into a, an internetline problem a while ago. Has that been reconciled or is that kind of ongoing? So it is, I think it's correct to call them separatists. But the funny thing is that, you know, within the Republic of Yemen government controlled areas, the separatists control most of it. So in a sense, they're, they're separatists who, who already control most of the territory. So it's this like, yeah. and, you know, there's, there's decent oil and gas in the rest of it, Marib. So it's almost like there's, there's no real need to separate from anything right now. And in fact, it wouldn't be a great idea. So, you know, what we already have is a de facto kind of divided Yemen in which we have the, the traditional South, which actually does include quite a lot of the East, um, already separated from Northern Yemen, which was pretty much al always the, um, the demand of the separatists. And you're right that Saudi Arabia and the Emirates um, are the two key players supporting the, the, the 
Republic of Yemen government. And when they're not working well together, the coalition war effort generally does not work and it suffers significant reverses and it misses opportunities. At the moment, the Saudis and the Emiratis are working pretty well together. Uh, there was a flip and I don't really understand why it happened. Um, you know, last year and what, it, what we saw was essentially the Saudis implicitly saying, you know what, upon reflection, you Emiratis are really good at this. Uh, so in places like Shabwa and Hadramat um, and on the Red Sea coast, we're not going to get in your way. Uh, we don't feel the need to support the Hadi government, which, you know, of course, Hadi went. And um, we don't feel the need to to try and restrict your your activities and the activities of your partners like Giants Brigade or the Southern Transitional Council. So essentially the, the Saudis sort of took a step back and the Emiratis became a bit freer again to interact with their partners and spheres of influence were kind of tacitly understood from that point onwards. The Saudis in Marib and Mahra, the Emiratis elsewhere, um, with the US Counterterrorism Task Force dropped in there, you know, well, operating in there as well, uh, alongside the Emiratis. And, and you know, it's working. And it, as a result, Marib was saved from overrun and the main oil and gas hub of the, um, of the Republic of Yemen government was saved. And the Houthis sort of learned, we can chip away at this place for two and a half years, um, and then we can lose it all in months and that i think was very demoralizing for them and they probably won't go for marib in full strength again excellent so cool um i just want to pick up on two questions to finish um one of them is slightly outside anything we've really spoke about so far but obviously within yemen the other two terrorist groups the main terrorist groups are al-qaeda and the islamic state um there have been I was going to say accusations, but I think it's a bit more than that. I think some of the, even the UN reports have reflected that Iran is manipulating these groups in certain areas. And actually, I think at times it's even kind of fabricated um, attacks nominally by ISIS that really are just them. Um, can you speak about this as a kind of, as a general trend and that it's kind of significance within the conflict? The one thing I'll say is that the, you know, I've been on Yemen quite a long time uh, and I've looked at things like the separatist insurgency in 2010 before the Southern Transitional Council, before the, the Arab Spring. And, you know, back then, um, there's pretty good evidence that Iranian trainers taught them how to make concealed foam uh, rock IEDs. And, you know... What I'm saying anyway is that the Iranians have at some point or other worked with almost all of these, these actors. They've done a little bit of, you know, favours for almost everyone and they've, they've assessed who they might work with in the future. And, um, <clears throat> and the entire country and its smuggling networks are marbled with, you know, Iranian, Lebanese, Hezbollah and Houthi influence. Also, you know, in Iraq, um, you know, in the past, from long experience there, Al-Qaeda had numerous interactions with uh, Revolutionary Guard uh, 
you know, puts force. And so nothing's unthinkable. Absolutely not. Um, but do I know much about this? No. Um, you know, I, I don't in this particular case. As you know, Al-Qaeda in Yemen is a pretty strong, independent and quite confident uh, entity. Um, Islamic State in Yemen, you know, is much more rudimentary. And I don't know if they would actively or intentionally use Iranian support. Um, you know, in the 2015 overrun of southern and eastern Yemen, we saw the Ali Abdullah Saleh government reach out to its former military cadres in the south, in Aden, and, and try and kind of suborn them and, and get them to flip on the Republic of Yemen government. But in the east, we saw the Ali Abdullah Saleh-linked uh, security forces simply walk away from their arsenals and say, Al-Qaeda, go for it, have it. And, you know, the Houthis, as a result, you know, didn't, were not sort of needed in that environment to shake the Republic of Yemen control of those areas. I often wonder what would have happened if the Houthis had eventually moved into those areas. Would Al-Qaeda have fought them or would they have uh, come to some arrangement? In my experience, um, a lot of the Islahi um, Yemeni government forces in the sort of Marib areas and Beda and all these areas, they look and they feel quite like Al-Qaeda tribal affiliate. And um, they didn't seem to like the Houthis very much at all. And they didn't seem to like me either. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I, I'm, I'm just, I'm not sure there's a lot of, I don't think there's any love between the Houthis, the Iranians and, and Al-Qaeda or ISIS in, uh, in Yemen. But I know from experience that anything is possible in these areas. Sure. Yeah, I think uh, Al-Qaeda, I probably should have, uh, I mean, I think Iran has this relationship with Al-Qaeda that pre-exists, but I think in Yemen, the, um, the cases I've seen anyway are mostly related to ISIS. And as I say, it's not really Iran having a relationship with ISIS, it's that they're, they're fabricating ISIS attacks as a kind of, it's what they did in Iraq. It's they're saying, we're fighting ISIS, so you should support us because the alternative right. is uh, much worse. But as you say, in Yemen, because the whole situation is so fluid in general, that it's kind of um, naming down exactly which side is which is sometimes a bit of a, a challenge. Yeah, and somewhere um, like okay. Taz is, you know, a, a super complicated jigsaw puzzle of factional actions, a bit like Lebanese civil war type environment where anyone can work. God, I'm still trying to work that one out. Um, uh, the final question basically is on the kind of where we go from here. Um, so I said the, in the US has kind of held this at arm's length the entire time. Um, Marib seems safe for now, but it, as you said that seems like it will probably be true. Um, but are the Houthis movable? I mean, I would assume if we're ever going to get to a settlement, they would have to be evicted from Sana. Um, but they also, I guess it's kind of difficult to imagine coming to a negotiating table with the Houthis because they don't seem intent on that. So, yeah, I guess, is there any chance of Houthi defeats? And if not, kind of what happens? Well, from my perspective, I, you know, I, I pushed very hard for Hodeida um, and Red Sea Coast. Um, decisive military operation <clears throat> and um, in 2018, because to me, it was the only thing that might assist a defeat mechanism or of the Houthis or indeed just forcing them to the negotiating table. 
So I considered it to be peace through Hodeida, uh, if, you, if you get my meaning. And that didn't happen in the end. Um, it left the Houthis with the coastline. They were not landlocked. Um, they didn't suffer that, that sort of psychological pressure. And they've strengthened their hold, not just on Sana'a and northern Yemen, but on a, a huge generation of young Yemenis that they were indoctrinated. Um, they, they've hybridized their movement and the remaining you know, bits of the Yemeni states. You know, most of their senior military commanders now wear fairly crisp military uniforms. They seek to look like an Islamic Republic. Um, you know, and and so I think we've missed the boat for actually defeating the Houthi movement or recovering Sana. Uh, I think that it's more like a North Korea, South Korea situation where these front lines will probably gel into a, a permanent division and we will have a, a Lebanese Hezbollah type movement but in many ways more cohesive and powerful, uh, sitting there off the southern um, border of Saudi Arabia on the Red Sea, facing Eilat, facing the Suez Canal. And, you know, they will continue to develop drone technology uh, to allow them to strike fully within Israel, in Egypt, you know, in, in, in Jordan, in any other environment they want to hit, Saudi west coast and so you know the 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 southern pincer of the shiite crescent you know exists and it's going to be very very difficult to change into something else now because you know the houthis know that in any meaningful peace negotiation they will only lose you know right now they're they're doing as as well as they possibly could do and anything you know, you need to threaten to take that thing away from them before they will accept having less. If you're not going to threaten to take it away from them, they will say, why, why should I give anything away? I have exactly what I want. And now, you know, if you look at the next strategy, it's to say I'm going to use my precision strike systems to make it impossible for the Yemeni government to export oil and gas until they give me a revenue share. Yeah, so... A very grim outlook. Um, thank, thank you so much for doing this. Um, I hope we can have you back at some time. So I think we've um, there were just so many other things we could have gone off on uh, to cover this. Um, Anytime. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye -bye.